This is Psalm 139. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is so wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed me in my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end and I am still with you. Oh, that you would kill the wicked, O oh God, and that the bloodthirsty would depart from me. Those who speak of you maliciously and lift them up against you for evil. Do I not hate you? Excuse me, I don't. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you. Yeah. That was a performative reading of scripture. That was very lovely. Thank you. I'm going to move this up because I need more room. We're going to talk about bodies today while some of you are getting massages. 
When I uh, was in college, I uh, remember hearing a story from a pastor. And it was uh, one of these tragic stories that happens when you're paying attention to the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God gets you in trouble. So here's what happened. They were having this uh, worship service and everybody was really feeling it. Uh, like you were feeling it with that reading or like you might have been feeling it with the clapping earlier or how you're feeling it right now because the sermon has started, right? And uh, and the associate pastor, so like the pastor Colin of the church, uh, at the end, got up to do the closing prayer. And there was this movement that was happening in the space. Uh, that everybody could feel it, that, that God was here. And it was causing people to respond. And so what was supposed to be like a two-minute prayer turned out to be a five-minute prayer. And then a couple of more minutes and people were responding. And so the, the associate pastor kind of let the spirit have some space. Okay. Seems like a great thing, something worth celebrating. But then the senior pastor uh, called the meeting on Monday. You see where this is going. And Pastor Colin, or whoever the pastor was, I'm like, sit down with me. Let's have a conversation. And explains that we have things on a schedule for a reason. And we have this stuff timed out for a reason. We actually have it timed out too. We print one of these out every day and we make sure that we have at least a sense of using your time well, of engaging you for a time but not abusing how much you're here. Okay? So the pastor explains that like this can never happen again. It doesn't matter what the Spirit of God is doing in the moment. This can never happen again. When you have two minutes to pray, you have two minutes to pray. Now, when I knew this church, this had happened years before and I got to know this church, they mark that as the moment when the Spirit left the place. That was the moment. And they were confessing and trying to understand what happened in that moment of restricting what at the moment felt like chaos but was just responsive. Something had happened to that associate pastor and his body, his whole spirit got in the movement that was happening. And it was threatening. Now, when and you all are doing a great job right now. When we're in church, we have a certain amount of propriety that we assume uh, I don't see anybody running around right now. Uh, there is this, there are these set of rules that you learn over time and, and we teach them to our kids over time and I taught, I learned them when I was young too. But how you act in certain spaces. Church turns out looks a lot like elementary school. Don't sit, don't touch, don't run for sure or, or yell or at least don't yell unless there's a cue to yell. But even if I gave the cue like, hey, let's all for a moment Let's let out a scream of joy. Let's just try it. So go. That was pretty good. I was not expecting it to go that Were you expecting it to go that well? I was not. I felt like three people were going to do it. That was really good. That is itself some kind of worship, an embodied response, potentially. Okay? So, yes! Yes! Oh, so good. Thank you. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about bodies. We have been leading up to this, it feels like, week after week uh, with this, uh, these images of new creation and of heaven meeting earth. We talked about our bodies and we talked about food, what it means to have a life that is sustained by eating and eating itself being a spiritual act. So this teaching today will, will feel something like that one. But the hope here is that over the course of the next few minutes, we might settle in to our bodies. And all of the complexity that that means. At the end of this teaching, we're going to have a moment for prayer. 
And even though we have a timestamp on the schedule, I'm going to ask for you to respond with your body. That may mean coming forward. That might mean kneeling where you are. It might mean holding the hand of someone next to you and being connected in this space of prayer. So much of what we do in this space is actually embodied activity. This is the reason I encourage you to be here week after week. You have other options for how you could worship. In fact, you could have stayed in your pajamas this morning and watched a sermon online, for instance. And the preacher would have been there on the screen. One time I was, uh, for research doing this and, uh, there was a little button on the side that said, like, if you would like to make a decision for Christ, you can raise your hand and you press the button and it raised a digital hand. I was curious how you would do like communion in that context, but But that's a way that a lot of people might assume you can experience what we would call church. Uh, And I'm getting hot already, folks. There is something about being here, about being here together that matters. Not just your mind being here, your thoughts, but your very being present with one another. This is one of those subtle, like foundational parts of being the church to be the gathered group of believers that I have a deep conviction about. And I will continually remind you of that conviction and ask you to hold it to that being bodily present matters. It matters for the way that you worship, the way that you're being formed toward Christ's image. It matters to be bodily present in all of the areas of your life, parenting, relationships, work. To be present where you are. And when you come to church, part of what we're doing is practicing being present in our bodies to one another and to God. That's a bit of what worship is like. But we're going to talk for a minute about a really fancy term I learned this week called, and I wrote it really silly because it's such a, such a complicated term. So it balances it out a little bit. Embodied cognition. I kind of had a sense of what this meant, but, but reading about it this week was quite enlightening. So there has been uh, all of these different kind of theories for how we learn things. And I have seven and a ten-year-old, and when I think about the kind of learning that they do in school, it, a lot of it has to do with with learning with their mind. Judah's doing, like, at, at this point, it feels like advanced-level math at ten years old because I don't understand it anymore. Um, Ruthie still has a, has a lot of her body in the, the act of learning, uh, but there is this new research that has been emerging for the last couple of decades. It says that actually the way that we learn is embedded in our, in our bodies, not just in our minds. When you think about comprehending the world, gaining knowledge and understanding, often you, sh- you probably thinking, thinking about thinking. Even when we imagine belief or faith in church and Christianity, there is a part that feels quite like cerebral, right? That it just involves our, our head, really. And if we can get our heads involved, our brains involved, that's good enough. That's actually all that we need. It's just the right sort of intellectual assent. Let me read you a passage I came across this week that talks about this idea of embodied cognition. It says, Rene Descartes, in the 17th century, made this kind of claim. There's a great difference between mind and body. Inasmuch as body is by nature always divisible and the mind is entirely indivisible. The mind or soul of a human is entirely different from the body. 
It goes on to say, in the preceding centuries, this notion of the disembodied mind, it flourished. Now, we have been talking about that the disembodied mind or the disembodied soul week after week after week. If there's one thing I've tried to cut against or subvert, it's this notion that we have a disembodied soul that is engaged with spiritual matters over against our bodies that pull us down in temptation, desire, or sin. Right? We have been bringing these two realities back together. And we're going to do it again today. Keep reading. In the preceding centuries, the notion of the disembodied mind it flourished. From it, Western thought, and we are all heirs to Western thought, live inside of it, developed two basic ideas. That reason is disembodied because the mind is disembodied. And that reason is transcendent and universal. Okay, that is, that is what I might would call the problem. So here's where this new research has been taking us. Cognitive science, it calls this entire philosophical worldview into question. On empirical grounds, the mind arises from the nature of our brains, our bodies, and our bodily experiences. It's not just the innocuous and obvious claim that we need a body to reason. Rather, it's the striking claim that the very structure of reason itself comes from the details of our embodiment. Say it again. It's a striking claim that the very structure of reason itself comes from the details of our embodiment. Thus, to understand reason, we must understand the details of our visual systems, our motor systems, and general mechanisms of neural bindings. The very structure of our reason comes from the details of our embodiment. You could replace the language of reason for the language of faith or belief. The very foundation of our faithfulness or our beliefs, our faith claims, are rooted in our embodiment. When you are in worship, you are not just sitting here. Our most meaningful rituals or sacraments are themselves embodied. We don't just say, like, imagine yourself baptized, right? Mari, you're going to be baptized soon. Like, just imagine yourself baptized. Now you're, you're good to go. We're going to actually put you under the water, like, all the way, right? Or, or with communion. Like, don't just imagine or think about taking Christ's body and blood, but actually eat the thing. Or for Baptists, there's this other tradition that uh, we could uh, re-embrace, which is foot washing. And everyone got a little bit uncomfortable. Because you thought maybe we were going to do foot washing today, but we're not. But foot washing is one of these signs or symbols in our tradition. Now, when you were a kid, you knew this to be true. Let's go back one more. There it is. This is how you learn things as a child. Right? And learning happens fast when you're a kid. Anytime I get to hold a kid, someone trusts me with a kid, immediately kid tries to take my beard, put it in their mouth. Because that's how they learn things. Like our kids, anytime we were anywhere, they would be sitting down on the ground, there would be anything that looks slightly organic and soft enough to chew, they would put it in their mouth to taste it. To learn about it, not necessarily because they thought that it was food, but because when you are like trying to learn and it's, it really matters for life and death, you need to use all of your, your faculties to do so. And so, whereas now might just be, how can we, how can we think the thing right into existence? I still have this habit. I smell everything because it helps to learn. 
And my wife's always quite concerned when she sees me go, to wonder like what's happened in the moment before that. Or to taste things, to learn. But that's how this works. What does it mean that our scriptures say to taste and to see that the Lord is good? Is that actual taste? Like we talked about a couple weeks ago, when we talk about the soul as the seat of desire or like throat or like thirst. If we imagine that core part of us that we think is engaged with God interacting in a very embodied way, like hunger and thirst. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does that mean? Embodied cognition, it actually feels like we are moving ahead fast here. Let's go back to that one. There it is. Brian, I may have you advance it because it's jumping two at a time. This to me is embodied cognition. This is from the first chapter of John's gospel. And the word became flesh. We are very good at separating. Putting things in categories of either or of good and bad. And in these categories, right, it's always that spirit is good and flesh is bad. Or heaven is good and earth is bad. Or soul is good and body is bad. This big word, incarnation, is what we mean when we read this verse. And the logos became sarks and the, the word became flesh. Incarnation has the word like for flesh in it, to be in flesh. And that itself is somehow working for our salvation. Next slide. So here's Descartes. And he was wrong. So he sort of is part of this lineage of what we've been calling dualism. Or this kind of split way of thinking about the world. And, and he gives us this understanding, again, sort of refreshed. That things can be broken up. You heard this quote from him earlier. Also gives us this understanding that, that our bodies are like, like machines, for instance. I will say today, and I think that Jesus would say too, this is not too bold of a claim to make, that this is wrong. Right? So next slide. We're going to look at some working metaphors here. So you've got the, you've got the body here. And let's do the next one. You've got the soul. And the two might be kind of like intermingled for a season. But then at some point, usually at death is the way we'd understand it. They, they separate, right? And that is a like really good, concise picture of the wrong way to think about what it means to be a body rather than to have a body. The next one, here's the other metaphor that you might have seen or heard. That the body is a prison for the soul. Maybe a prison in the, in the good way, if there even is a good way to think about prisons anymore, which is a place of training and refinement. That's actually not how prisons work anymore. They're simply punitive. But, or, right, it's this thing that you want to break free of at some point. And so then you start to use the language of death as a freeing of the spirit from the body. That's the prison metaphor. Next. There's this one, that the body is the location of all the beginnings of sin. Right? Because like if you were struggling with some kind of carnal sin, lust or gluttony or anger, 
You can place these things like they kind of have their roots in your body. And so then what happens over time is like, it's not my fault. My body is just this like really messed up thing and it keeps causing me to spin out of control. And at some point I will be free from this temptation. That can take us to some dangerous places. Let me tell you a story I've told you before, but it fits for today. And so I'm going to tell it to you again. Uh, there was this uh, guy and he was just graduating high school and he's going into college and he's finally free to sort of figure out who he was. Um, turned out that uh, he didn't find himself attracted to women. He found himself attracted to men. And when he was sort of outside of the place where he grew up, trying to figure out how do I integrate all of these desires and my identity and found really bad avenues for that integration and ended up having like a lot of different uh, sexual partners and then took up a lot of addictive practices and substance abuse. And at some point, one of the ministers of the church we grew up had a, had a lunch with him and said, like, what is what's going on here? Why, why all of this broken patterned behavior? And the guy said, this picture, he said, I'm going to hell anyway. So what does it matter what I do to my body right now? Someone had sold him a a whole set of lies about what it means to, to be an embodied soul. And somewhere along the line, he had caught this message that his body was the thing that was causing him to sin. And like, what did it matter if that burned to the ground? Metaphors can be dangerous. Next. Or this one. We see a lot of this one lately. That the body is machine. And the body is machine has inefficiencies, right? Like the thing starts to break down and that's a problem. Or it expires at some point. But if we could just like tweak, if we can find some new materials to work with, some maybe new technologies, maybe we can get this machine to become a perpetual motion machine and then we can beat even death. This is the language coming out of any kind of emerging technologies in healthcare or or in Silicon Valley. We've talked about this before that we can move past these creaturely limits. We can learn to perfect the machine. Next. This is the false equation. That human equals body plus soul. Unlearn this. Scrub it. Next. This is what the Bible actually teaches. That the soul, the nephesh, a living being, is dust plus breath. This comes to us from the book of Genesis. I'll read it for you in case you don't believe me. It's from chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the Adamah, the human, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life And the human became a living being. The Lord God formed the man, the Adam, from the dust of the ground, the Adamah, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the Ruach. 
the man became a nephesh, a soul, a living being. That is actually, if you want to break this thing down into math terms, what we are made of. We're made of the dust and the dirt, and then we are also made of the breath of the divine. Both of those joined. The New Testament will say that the logos became sarks. It's the same move. Just like we say in weddings, what God has joined together, let no one tear apart. Next. This is my best stab at that equation. Which brings us to our passage today that you heard Camille read. Psalm 139. This is a psalm of David. Just a reminder, David was all about the body, sometimes in bad ways, right? Problematic ways, but also in singing and dancing in ecstasy kind of ways in front of God. This psalm. By the way, today is Mother's Day. Think about, imagine... God is mother here. Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up and you discern my thoughts from far away. Search out my path and my lying down, acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, oh Lord, you know it completely. This reminds me a lot of the ways that the mother in our household functions. Corey, uh, all of this sounds very, very familiar. Keep going. Verse 13. It was you who formed me in my inward parts. And you who knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. That I know well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret place. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, and none of them had yet existed. Have you ever watched a parent hold a child and examine that skin like it's a wonder? Maybe you've done this before. Fingers formed skin not yet wrinkled eyes that are sort of darting all around there is this affection that's paid to the body of the child by the parent and that is what God is doing in this psalm like taking you taking me and seeing and appreciating all of the goodness that is there, fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, as parents now with a seven and a ten-year-old, at some point they start to absorb over time the messages that we are always pumping into young kids and adults about what our bodies should look like or should not look like and how to form them in such a way so they're acceptable. And, and sometimes we'll kind of receive from them, like, I don't like the way that this looks or that looks or this is working or that is working. And, and I'll get at least a little bit frustrated to think like, no, you're really good. Like, you're really good just like you are. 
I don't know who told you you weren't. That's what God is doing. I don't know who told you you weren't. That you needed to shuttle off this part and just hold on to this part. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's just in the book. That's just in the tradition. The other language that's inside of this is this language of maker. Let's go to the next one. Back in the day when I would do pottery, I remember always being sort of fascinated by the way that you can see the fingerprints if the, if the work is handmade on the, on the pot once it's fired. This is true of all kinds of art. You, there are like little marks of the maker inside the work. This is part of the reason that when you look at these images up here, often like they, they have a certain kind of quality to them because I draw most of them. So I like am inside of the, these pictures. That is what we are also like. That there's something about the way that God has made us and not made our minds, but made us, our, our whole being. There's something about the way that God has made us that speaks of God's character and God's qualities, like fingerprints all over us, impressions of the divine all over us. I don't know what it would mean to tell young girls that this is how they were made from the moment they can imagine their own physical being all the way up until adulthood. Like, what would that change about the ways that we are in the world to really understand who we are or whose we are? Next slide. We're going to talk about a few bodies from scripture. When we talk about bodies, we're talking about politics and economics, talking about social structures, talking about gender, talking about race. Eve's body. Woman's body. For a long time, the tradition told us, our tradition, Christian tradition, over time, hundreds and hundreds of years, that it was the woman who did the thing wrong first and then tempted the man to do the thing wrong second and then has been tempting humanity ever since then, often tempting humanity with her very body. You may not have heard this explicitly, but like if you ever went to church camp, you definitely felt it because no one was measuring my shorts at church camp, but they were definitely measuring somebody else's shorts, all the ladies, right? There is a sense in which the female body might be too dangerous. And so it needs to be muted or it needs to be lessened. If you go and just like go to a magazine stand and read the front covers of all of the body magazines, it is all about how the female form can be reduced or disappear. How to be thinner, how to be smaller, how to be less, how to erase. There is a way in which the way we tell the scriptures feeds into that. The Eve's legacy, when we tell it wrong, is that female bodies are dangerous. Again, what would it mean to live into fearfully and wonderfully made? Next. Cain's body. You remember the story of Cain? 
Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother. God sees and is like super frustrated with this situation. And so Cain is given this mark so that when Cain goes from place to place, the different villagers and different tribes would not kill Cain because there would be this mark that protected him but also shamed him. Over time, that mark, do you know this story? The mark of Cain becomes associated with the color of skin. And the race of Cain then becomes what we would call our African-American brothers and sisters. Brown bodies. The, the mark of sin is a darkened skin. That's amazing and terrible. There was, and still is in some places, this theological notion that the way that black bodies would be saved is by being given a white soul. That is only possible in a world where you are splitting the body and the soul and you're calling one of these good and one of these bad. That is only possible in a dualistic world. Now we're seeing this moment, we've been seeing it for decades now, this celebration of bodies that don't look like whatever the culture says is appropriate. And that move of love, of self, of embracing, of color, and of culture, and of skin, is itself a gospel move. Its origins are in Jesus, who's logos and sarks. It's word and flesh. But we have not always told these stories well. In fact, we've found ways to tell them in very broken ways. Now let's go to the next one. How much attention have we paid to Mary's body who carried God inside of her? What a woman. What a person. What does it do to the story that is being told of Eve to have Mary show up and hold the sacred and give birth to it in the world through her body? Again, not the idea of birth. I imagine if we asked Mary, like, did you like the idea of giving birth to Jesus? How did that feel to you? She would have some thoughts about the physicality of giving birth to the sacred in the world. Right? Flesh and blood and crying and, and mess and stable, like all of that and the smell and the, oh, the whole thing has a flesh written all over it. Mary's body carries God into the world. Of course, we would have to talk about Jesus' body. Just, just the words, just the idea. That God took on flesh. It says it all. The whole thing about what we mean to God. Is right there in this image. When you've seen me. Jesus says you've seen. The father. And what do we do. To Jesus's body. In the story. Because Jesus keeps putting his body in conversation with other bodies that are definitely not supposed to be engaged, 
right? Like tax collectors or prostitutes or people who don't know when they should stop eating or drinking. And so Jesus's body becomes defiled in the way that he's not careful with it. And then at some point, Jesus's body keeps showing up in these spaces that are threatening to the authorities and the establishments. And so they abuse Jesus's body until the point of, of death. Crucifixion is an embodied act. It is a hatred of the body, the body of God in the world, just as any abusive act is, a, is an abusive, violent act towards God's body in the world, God's image in the world. Jesus does not flee the body. This is the point of the resurrection. Jesus does not flee it for the spirit, but takes the body subject to death and decay and moves it through death and back into life. And so when Paul says that we groan inwardly waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Because we are caught up in Jesus' story. And Jesus stays in the body. Raised in body. I'm really hungry, guys. In case you were wondering if I'm a ghost or anything. I'd love some food and some water. You sure you're not sure? Here, look, feel, touch. And see, this is the way that those first witnesses to the gospel and to the resurrection experienced it. They experienced it. Taste and see, touch and, and see. Romans 8, which we read just recently. Let's go to the last one, Brian. I'll read it again. This is from chapter 8, starting in verse 18. I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed in us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now and not only creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly while we wait for adoption the redemption of our bodies and in this line likewise the spirit helps us in our frailty helps us in our vulnerability helps us in our sickness in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. Paul moves immediately from this language about all of creation being redeemed, which we talked about last week. And then this, this yearning, this groaning that we do inwardly for the redemption of our own bodies, not our not just our spirits or our souls, but our somas, our bodies. And then immediately after that goes to, and when you go to pray and don't know how, the spirit speaks with you, interprets for you. I don't know if you've been to like a very charismatic, soul-filled church service in a while, but if you haven't, you should. Or maybe we should just try and figure out how to do that here sometimes. <laughs> We did a little bit of it, like the clapping when you yelled. Sometimes if you're in these places, there might even be running down the aisles. They're standing and shouting. The sort of ecstasy that it invades the moment. 
most of the time, we're just sitting. So what I'm going to ask you to do right now, as we move out of this teaching into the rest of worship, and as you move through your life, I'm going to ask you to be present in this moment where you are to your body. We're going to pray. We're going to pray in a way that is a little bit... uh, well, it calls back to a time and a tradition that might be meaningful for some of you. The old altar call kind of prayer, where you are invited even to come forward, if you would like. Uh, I'll open us up in this prayer time, and I'm going to ask. We've got some prayer team folks who are going to come down to the front. Uh, and so they'll be in both of these side sections over here, and then Pastor Colin and myself will also be over here if you would like to receive prayer. Because it matters, too, to receive even just a hand on your shoulder and a blessing. To acknowledge that you are here and that you are seen. Now some of you have been sitting here for this entire uh, time feeling the worthlessness of your body, the brokenness of your body, that it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, that it's failed you or that it's led you astray. Or that you've used your body in ways that have harmed others, that have been careless. Whatever ways that you feel sick or hurting or, or broken, just like just maybe just come forward and let one of these folks tell you something else. Remind you of this fearfully and wonderfully, the spirit and dust. The soul and body. We have a lot to confess about the ways that we hold our own posture in the world. The way that we respect what Paul calls a temple or the way that we hate or denigrate it. And this is an invitation to not just think your faith, but to live your faith and to do your faith. And so that's what we're going to do. We'll keep this time open. And then at the end of this little bit of prayer, I will close us out in a prayer. If you happen to still be up here at the front or wherever you are, that's okay. Um, I'm not going to call anybody in the office on Monday to say we need to control this thing. Right? But I offer the invitation. If you don't want to come forward, just have a practice of noticing and being thankful for the way that God has made you. For the breath that you have right now. For the fact that you're being sustained by something outside of yourself. If you're with someone who you trust, you might take their hand and acknowledge physically that you are present together in this space with Christ. Because it isn't just your body, it's ours that make up the body of Christ. Join me in prayer as we open this time up. God, help us to be present in this space. Help us to be present in our skin, to not run from it. We thank you for the ways that you have made us. Not the same, but somehow speaking of your love 
of diversity. And we want to love what you love. And you love us just as we are. We want to be whole. But we don't always feel whole, God. We feel like we're in a hundred pieces sometimes. And we've been given lies. So give us your truth. Receive these prayers from my brothers and sisters. Heal us in mind, body, and spirit. Christ's name. This time is open.